It's early, on October 16th, 1920, in the Pine Barrens, the sprawling forested area that stretches across seven counties of New Jersey State. Surrounded by towering trees, four duck hunters stalk through a misty terrain of swampland just north of Camden County. It's the first day of hunting season, and these men have been blowing their wooden whistles down by a stream, trying to lure the birds out. So far, they've had no luck attracting prey. Feeling that this area is just too fallow, they head further northwards through the woodland, crossing into Burlington County. Close by is a stream there, known as Bread and Cheese Creek, which they hope will prove to be a better hunting ground. To cause less noise, the hunters separate from one another. Moving through to drier ground, one hunter watches his footing, trying hard not to trip. The mist is especially thick here, and the ground can be treacherous. The Pine Barrens. It's always held great mystery, even for a local man like him. For as long as anyone can remember, these woods have inspired frightening myths, such as the Jersey Devil, a winged cloven-hoofed creature who's said to have terrorized these woods for almost two centuries. But the horror that this hunter is about to unearth is of a much more humankind. Up ahead, he stumbles across a disturbed patch of land covered with a layer of dry brown leaves. Right away, the hunter knows that something is very wrong. Inching closer, he sees a strange mass buried under the leaves. Shakily, he brushes them aside with the tip of his rifle. What he discovers is so shocking that instantly he reaches for his whistle to alert his friends. Hearing this alarm, his companions rush through the trees to his aid. Drawing up close, they find him pointing down into the earth in front of him, lying in a shallow grave, surrounded by insects, is the body of a man. He's in a suit and tie, and his legs are tightly bound together with a heavy rope. Horrifyingly, his head appears to have suffered some kind of terrible, disfiguring blow. The hunters exchange astonished looks. Then one says what they're all thinking. This must be him, the missing bank messenger. All these men are familiar with the local mystery that's been well reported in newspapers. You see, 11 days earlier, on October 5th, a bank employee named David S. Paul was sent from the Broadway Trust Bank in Camden to the Girard National Bank in Philadelphia. 
He carried a leather pouch containing $42,000 in checks and $40,000 in cash. However, he failed to arrive at his destination. According to the newspapers, the Camden police have been at a loss. Had he absconded with the money? They wondered. Or had he instead been attacked by thieves along the way and was possibly murdered in a struggle? Whatever the answer, a reward of $1,000 has been offered to anyone who can help find the missing bank employee. So it seems the hunters have caught something much more valuable than ducks this morning. Not wasting any more time, two of the men race straight back to Camden to alert the authorities. The others remain with the corpse until they return. When Chief Detective Duran of the Camden Police eventually arrives, he tries to establish for sure that this is the man that everyone has been searching for. The corpse does have the same sandy hair color as the missing man, he thinks, and he looks to be David Paul's height of 5'10". Also, the clothes match those that he was said to be wearing on the day of his disappearance. But for some strange reason, they're soaking wet despite being some distance from any body of water. Duran then tells his officers that although this has been their case up until now, this is not their crime scene. Because the body has been discovered just north of the county line. They're now in the jurisdiction of the Burlington County Police. And Duran knows what that means. This investigation will undoubtedly be passed over to a man who is the most famous detective in the United States, Ellis H. Parker. Parker has been Burlington's chief detective for over two decades now. He and his officers handle hundreds of cases a year, and the overwhelming majority of them result in swift arrests, and solid convictions. Due to his extraordinary success rate, he's become known in the national papers as the county detective with a worldwide reputation. And now, just as America is entering its first year of prohibition, Ellis Parker will investigate his most puzzling case yet. The murder of the Camden Bank Messenger will test the already celebrated Parker's deductive reasoning. His forensic expertise and his understanding of human psychology more than any other before it. Despite being a true story, it's an investigation that'll play out like something from the mind of novelist Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And it'll cement Parker's growing reputation in the press as... America's real-life Sherlock Holmes. My name is Mark Dotson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. In this episode, 
we're tailing fabled investigator Ellis H. Parker. This murder mystery will require everything he's got. But that's the thing about great detectives. They're all in. Theirs is an obsessive desire to uncover the truth. That's what keeps them up at night and never lets them rest until they've closed the case. From Noiser, this is the story of the pickled corpse. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. It's mid-afternoon on the same day in the town of Mott Holly in Burlington. On the second floor of a red brick building next to the courthouse is the Elks Club Bar. It's a respectable, exclusive establishment frequented by important men of the town, such as judges, lawyers, businessmen, and doctors. Today, though, the bar is sparsely populated with just a few retired gentlemen taking a late lunch. Sitting in his favorite corner, smoking a pipe, is Detective Ellis H. Parker. He's in no rush to return to his office next door. He has a large team of officers who can handle his current caseload, so he's at liberty to enjoy a peaceful smoke and leaf through the newspaper. Parker is curious to see if there's any news about the missing bank employee from Camden. He's taken a particular interest in that case as he knows David Paul's family very well. Paul's adult son lives nearby and Detective Parker would be able to identify the missing man on site. But today, there are no updates in the Trenton Times. Over the two decades that he's been Burlington's chief detective, Parker's been portrayed in highly flattering terms within the pages of the popular press. As a result, the public have an image of Parker as a dashing Holmesian figure, a heroic image which contrasts sharply with his real appearance. A short, balding man of 49, Parker doesn't look much like the intimidating lawman he's regularly portrayed as. His well-worn suit is often rumpled, and he's the only member of the Elks Club who never wears a tie. If someone didn't know who he was, they could easily mistake him for a local salesman and not pay him any attention which, if they had something illegal to hide, would be a mistake. Just as Parker is folding up his paper, the door to the Elks Club bar opens. A pretty young woman walks into the club, causing some of the older members to murmur in disapproval. See, women are not typically permitted to enter the Elks Club bar but an exception is sometimes made for Miss Anna Use. An extremely organized and bright young woman, Anna is more than just Detective Parker's secretary. In the short time she's been working for him, she's become his right-hand woman, as indispensable as the fictional Dr. Watson is to Sherlock Holmes. Knowing that she wouldn't disturb him in his club unless it was important, 
Parker folds away his newspaper as she approaches and invites her to sit. After waving away the tobacco smoke that surrounds her boss, Anna explains that there has been a breakthrough in the bank messenger case from Camden. A body believed to be Mr. Paul has been discovered in the Pine Barrens near Irick's Crossing. Our jurisdiction. Without extinguishing his pipe, Parker stands and retrieves his coat from the nearby rack. Although he has plenty of capable officers who could handle this investigation, he knows it'll be too high profile for him to not lead himself. And so he strides out of the smoky gentleman's club and heads straight for the crime scene. Parker arrives at Irick's Crossing, close to where the body's been found. Through the thick woodland, he can just about see the figures of Chief Detective Duran and his officers surrounding the shallow grave. It's an especially eerie part of the Pinelands. As he approaches, unseen crows call loudly in the trees above, as if warning other birds of his approach. Parker and Duran shake hands, equals in rank. The two men have met many times and have great respect for one another. But because this is Parker's jurisdiction, Duran defers to him while offering every assistance. Parker kneels down to better inspect the corpse. The gash in the forehead has disfigured his face to a shocking degree. But despite this, Parker recognizes him. He can immediately tell from the pockmarks on the victim's cheek that this is the body of David Paul. Parker looks at the thick rope that's tying Paul's legs together. It looks like the type which you would maybe use to tow an automobile. He then searches through Paul's pockets and finds the leather pouch he'd read about in the newspapers. He finds that the $40,000 cash are missing. However, to his surprise, the checks are still there. But they're completely sodden and the ink is smeared. The body is also soaked through. This is very strange, as there isn't any water in the immediate vicinity. Furthermore, the ground surrounding Paul's corpse is dry including the leaves used to cover him. It seems to Parker that the killers must have transported the body here from a nearby stream and then made a clumsy attempt to bury him. Inspecting the surrounding ground, he and the other officers find tire tracks in the sandy soil. The tracks appear to come from the direction of a stream locally known as Bread and Cheese Creek. By now, two local doctors have arrived to carry out the post-mortem. They immediately agree that the head wound must have been caused by an axe or a hatchet. Next, they attempt to ascertain the time of death. Once their examination is complete, both doctors declare with some confidence that Paul has been dead for less than 48 hours. 
his body hasn't decomposed enough to have been deceased for much longer. They insist. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. In the doctor's opinion, David Paul must have been killed on either the 14th or 15th of October. Ellis Parker puffs on his pipe, unsure if he agrees with their conclusion. For one thing, he says, Paul is wearing exactly the same suit that he was reportedly last seen in 11 days earlier. That suggests he was murdered soon after his disappearance. Parker then refers back to the damp state of the body. Surely this corpse has been submerged in water after dying, he says. The doctors both nod in agreement. Then, opening the leather pouch, Parker shows them the soggy, ink-stained checks. He explains that pouches such as this are commonly used by banks because they're waterproof. Therefore, the papers within could survive being dropped in the creek for a few days even before becoming damaged. In fact, Parker asserts that if you were to leave sealed pouches like this inside a full bath, they would take at least a week for the water to successfully seep through. And yet, these checks are sodden. This means that Paul has been underwater for much longer than the doctors have estimated. Somewhat aggrieved at having their professional opinion questioned, the doctors persist in their claim that the body is fresher than that. They ask Parker to consider the bruises by the victim's ear. If he'd been dead for longer than two days, he wouldn't still be visible, they tell him. Thanking the doctors for their educated opinion, Parker asks if he can borrow one of the small empty bottles they're carrying in a medicine case. Then he turns to Chief Detective Duran and suggests that they walk to the Bread and Cheese Creek following the tracks of the car. Trudging through the twisting woods, the clay soil beneath the detective's shoes become thicker. As a result, the tire tracks leading to the creek become even more distinct. Detective Parker observes that this is a very irregular path for an automobile to have taken. So it's plausible that this car was used 
to transport the body from the creek to Irick's crossing. Parker admits to Duran that there's much about this crime that puzzles him. He'd been keeping up with the case details ever since the bank messenger went missing. But now he asks to hear it all again, considering he's now leading the murder investigation. And so, as they head down toward the creek, Duran relates everything he's learned about David Paul since his disappearance. As soon as David Paul went missing, the Camden police set about trying to establish what type of person he was. They wanted to know if he was the sort of man who might run off with such a large amount of money. According to everyone they asked, Paul was a clean-living family man with two adult children, well-liked in his community. He and his wife were known as respectable people who never missed church on Sunday. And even before Prohibition, he was never known to take a drink. However, when the police eventually forced open Paul's work locker, <laughs> they discovered evidence that sharply contrasted with this upright image. Inside, they found a thick collection of letters written to him by over a dozen women. Some of them dated back as far as three years, and all were of a highly scandalous nature. It seems that when he wasn't working for the bank, Mr. Paul would spend a great deal of time at a place called the Lollipop Inn. According to the letters, the Lollipop Inn is an establishment in the nearby borough of Clementon. There, a select group of local men drink liquor, dance to music, and generally carouse with much younger women. The female authors of these sensational letters appear to be a succession of mistresses that Paul met at the inn. Most of them thank him for the expensive gifts he'd been buying them during their acquaintance. Others make insinuating references to debauched acts they enjoyed together in what one of them described as an orgy cottage. It seems that the 59-year-old family man was far from a paragon of virtue after all. Keen to learn more about the Lollipop Inn, Duran asked all of his officers if they'd ever heard of it. If any of them had, they didn't admit it to their superior officer. But the letters also reference a man named Frank James, supposedly a friend of Paul's who was also a regular visitor to the inn. Duran knows exactly who Frank James is. At just 26 years old, the automobile salesman has already made himself a small fortune in recent years. In fact, he's one of the wealthiest young men in the area. Duran and his men rushed straight to James's large house in Camden to learn more about this orgy cottage he'd been supposedly frequenting. But, according to his wife, James had been away for days now. When asked where he might be, she shrugged sadly. Probably at the Lollipop Inn. 
Sitting with her in her living room, Duran questioned the young woman about her husband. It quickly became obvious from her uncomfortable demeanor that she was well aware of what the Lollipop Inn was and was disgusted by her husband for spending so much time there. It's a private bungalow, she told the police. So, not technically a speakeasy. The hosts throw parties where alcohol is provided, but the men don't pay with money. Instead, Frank will often give the hosts expensive gifts. Duran nodded his understanding. He imagined there was a similar arrangement with the women who David Paul had been lavishing expensive gifts on. They could easily avoid a charge of prostitution if it seemed they just accepted tokens of affection instead of cash. Mrs. James told the detective that she was aware her husband is often unfaithful to her and that she simply learned to live with it. She also knows that he's been encouraging many of his married friends, including David Paul, to accompany him to the Lollipop Inn. Duran asks Mrs. James if she knew the identities of any other men who frequented the inn with her husband and David Paul. With tremendous relish, the wronged woman provided the police with several names and addresses. However, when Frank James and these other lollipop men were questioned about Paul's disappearance, they denied all knowledge of it. None of them claimed to have seen him since before he was reported missing. And so, despite having learned about an establishment with a dubious relationship to the law, the police hadn't exactly made any inroads into the whereabouts of the missing bank messenger. That is, until the duck hunters found his body on October 16th. By the time the two detectives reached the causeway of Bread and Cheese Creek, Duran has relayed all this information to Detective Parker. Still smoking his pipe, Parker considers what he's been told. It certainly sounds like David Paul was keeping bad company. The detective wonders if Paul had carelessly told someone at the Lollipop Inn that he was transporting such large sums of money. If so, it's possible that such a boast might have gotten him killed. But for the moment, Parker's keen to learn how long Paul's corpse actually spent in the creek. Parker searches the causeway, trying to determine where the body was pulled from. The water is deep enough for it to have been completely submerged had the killer weighed it down with stones. And even if it wasn't, this swamp-like spot is remote enough for the killer to have assumed that the body would not be found for a while. Parker tells Duran that, in spite of the doctor's opinions, he suspects that the victim was dumped in the creek soon after he went missing on October 5th. But the killer, or killers, 
realizing that duck hunting season was fast approaching, worried that the body would be discovered by hunters. So, they moved it via automobile to a more discreet spot and unsuccessfully tried to bury it. If true, this tells Parker that the killer must possess good local knowledge. The only thing that doesn't make sense about that scenario is the fresh bruises on Paul's head. Parker knows that the doctors are correct when they say that typically such wounds would not be visible after a couple weeks. But Parker's already developed a theory as to why that might be. So he draws Duran's attention to the color of the water in Bread and Cheese Creek. It's much darker than some of the other streams that pass through the Pine Barrens. He asks Duran if he knows why this is. Considering the question carefully, Duran eventually answers that it must have something to do with the tanning factories positioned upstream. Exactly, Parker nods. Some external element is flowing into these waters from the factories. But what? Then, producing from his pocket the small bottle given to him by the doctors, Parker kneels down to the river's edge. After filling it with water, Parker screws the cap back on and places it again in his pocket. He tells Duran that he'll take the water sample to the nearest chemist to be tested against the clothes that Paul died in. Detective Parker then turns his attention to the route that David Paul was supposed to have taken to the Philadelphia bank. He thinks it's highly unlikely that the man would have been killed by robbers in broad daylight. Instead, he surmises that Paul may have accepted a ride in a motor car from someone he knew well. Perhaps he was killed inside the car, or perhaps the killer drove him to another location where the robbery and murder took place. Either way, the car could then have transported him to this spot. But who could the driver have been? The truth is that although cars are becoming increasingly common on the roads of New Jersey, not everyone in Camden has one. But there is one man connected to this case who most certainly owns an automobile. Frank James, the successful car salesman who was friends with David Paul and regularly frequented the Lollipop Inn with him. Now with this in mind, Parker's keen to know if James can account for his whereabouts on October 5th, the day that Paul went missing. Chief Detective Duran tells Parker that only two of the Lollipop men already interviewed have so far provided alibis for October 5th. These were Raymond W. Shuck, the son of a local politician, and the aforementioned car dealer, Frank James. James says he was in Detroit for a car industry conference around the time Paul went missing. Shuck claims he'd been visiting friends downstate. Good, Parker nods. 
Those are our two main suspects. Confused, Duran asks him why he'd think that the only two men with strong alibis would be the most suspicious. Parker then imparts one of his pet theories about crime solving. In his experience, he explains, the suspect with the best alibi is often the most guilty. He relates how he once investigated a case at Fort Dix where a GI was murdered by another soldier. Of 175 potential suspects, almost none of them could remember what they were doing on the night of the murder. Only one man had an alibi ready for the police. Despite being asked to repeat his alibi on numerous occasions, this suspect always stuck to the exact same story. It felt to the detective like he'd been rehearsing a script. Investigating this man more closely, Parker soon discovered hard evidence that he was indeed the G.I.'s killer. Now, because of this and similar experiences, Parker now believes that a two-solid alibi is potentially a sign of guilt. Hence, his interest in Frank James and Ray Shuck. Like the G.I.'s killer from Fort Dix, they also seem to have prepared their alibis a little too well for Parker's liking. Sounds a bit illogical, right? I mean, if you were in Parker's shoes, wouldn't you want to at least talk to the suspects without alibis? But Parker's been at this game for a long time. He knows the criminal mind almost as well as he knows his own. And his theory is about to be proven right. It's October 17th, the day after David Paul's body was found at Irick's Crossing. Using long nets, some of Parker's officers fish through the dark water of Bread and Cheese Creek in search of evidence. They're looking for anything that might link potential suspects to the scene, but so far, they found nothing. It's dirty, miserable work, but suddenly, one of them sees something glinting in the reeds near the causeway. Drawing closer, he finds a pair of men's spectacles trapped within the reeds. They're horn-rimmed and seem rather expensive. When Parker has shown them, he's convinced they cannot have been there for very long. Parker has already established that the victim didn't wear spectacles, so he knows these do not belong to him. Could they have fallen from the face of his killer? Parker asks his officers to ascertain if either Frank James or Ray Shuck wear horn-rimmed spectacles. He's delighted when informed that James does. Not only that, but he's recently been seen sporting a new pair since October 5th, the day that David Paul went missing. It should be easy to ascertain for certain if these spectacles belong to him, Parker thinks. 
And if so, then that might be enough to secure a conviction against Frank James. Hours after the discovery of the spectacles, the local pharmacist telephones Parker with the results of his water test. As Parker expected, the water in Bread and Cheese Creek contains a chemical element not found in other local waters. Flowing in from the factories upstream, the creek contains high levels of tannic acid. Parker's told that this distinctive chemical was also found on Paul's clothes, proving that he had been submerged in the creek. Parker asks the pharmacist what such a chemical would do to a human body. He's told that it would preserve it. David Paul could have been lying in the creek for over a month, and it would look like he'd only been dead a few days. I thought so, Parker says to the pharmacist after thanking him. That creek has pickled the corpse. No wonder the doctors misidentified the time of death. Armed with his forensic evidence and the dropped spectacles, Parker now feels he has enough to link Frank James to the crime. But the politician's son, Ray Shuck, is still of interest to him. And he becomes even more interested when he learns that there's a certain someone in town who has their own scandalous story to tell about young Mr. Shuck. It's a week later at Burlington County Police Station. Ellis Parker sits across a table from a young woman named Mary, who's wearing what looks to be an expensive fur coat. Mary is uncommonly beautiful, but she also seems naive and unworldly. When Parker originally approached her for questioning, she froze clearly terrified of the high-ranking policeman. But now the interview is underway. Mary appears less petrified. Parker suspects this has to do with the other lady in the room, sitting beside him and taking shorthand notes in her legal pad. Parker's secretary, Ann Use, often proves an invaluable presence during sensitive interviews such as this one and not just for her ability to record everything that's said with reliable accuracy. Parker is aware of how intimidating detectives like himself can be, especially to girls like Mary. They can sometimes clam up under questioning. But Anna exudes a kind of sympathetic quality. Because of this, interviewees often direct their answers to her instead of Parker as if sensing that she'll be more understanding. Such is the case today, as Parker questions Mary about her year-long involvement with a married man that she met at the Lollipop Inn. Avoiding eye contact with Parker, Mary glances towards his secretary as she confirms that, yes, she and the 32-year-old Raymond Shuck have been lovers for some time but she swears that until today, she had no idea that he had a wife and is devastated to hear it. 
shuck off and promised that he was going to marry her and has been lavishing her with expensive gifts. The fur coat she's wearing is one of them. The son of a local politician, Shuck comes from a much more affluent background than the humble Mary. It seems to Parker that he's been spending much more money on his mistress than he realistically earns. Shuck had told police that he was with friends downstate on October 5th, the day that Paul went missing. A vague and flimsy alibi, but he could have been trying to hide the fact that he was with his mistress. Parker asks Mary if she was with Shuck on October 5th. She shakes her head, but says she saw him the next day. Did he have any money on him then? Parker asks. Mary nods. He had a roll of 20s. This sets off alarm bells for Parker. Most of the cash that Paul had been carrying when he vanished had been in $20 notes. He then asks Mary if she was with Shuck on October 13th, the day he believes Paul's body was transported from the creek to Irick's Crossing. Again, Mary shakes her head. They did have a date arranged for that night, but Shuck stood her up. The interview concluded. Parker thanks Mary and lets her leave. But he's extremely pleased with the testimony that she just provided. Parker's been developing a theory that David Paul was killed by both Raymond Shuck and Frank James. And the more information he gathers about these two men, the more his theory seems to hold water. Now, Parker wants to know if Frank James' story can also be torn apart. James claimed to have been at a car conference in Detroit on the week of Paul's disappearance. A number of the other attendees have come forward saying that they did indeed see him there during that period. But Parker's team have now investigated those claims more closely and have subsequently learned that most of those witnesses specifically saw him toward the end of the conference, days after Paul went missing. Nobody recalls seeing Frank James there on the crucial day of October 5th. Now, all that's left is for Parker to narrow down a motive. And he has a pretty good idea of what that might be. He suspects that Shuck and James were wildly overspending at the Lollipop Inn. They needed funds to support their lifestyle of mistresses and illegal booze. So, when they learned from David Paul that he was transporting large amounts across state lines, they decided to ambush him. The result was murder. That's Parker's theory, and he feels pretty sure it'll stick. And he knows that the best way to get two killers to confess is to turn them against each other. It's November 4th, 1920, three weeks after David Paul's body was found murdered in the Pine Barrens. Earlier today, Frank James was arrested for the crime 
Detective Parker now sits across from the young car salesman while Anna takes notes. For a man answering questions about such a well-publicized murder investigation, James looks remarkably relaxed about the situation. He's already admitted to being a regular guest at the Lollipop Inn, but adds that this is not a crime as he never pays for any alcohol while he's there. It's given to him freely, he says, by a generous host. He admits to having slept with various women at the inn, but points out that adultery is also not a crime. Again, no money ever exchanges hands, so he can't be charged as a John. A different detective might lose their temper with James' smug attitude, but Parker instead wants to lure him into a false sense of security. He insinuates that he envies the man's decadent lifestyle. His manner suggests that boys will be boys, and if it weren't for the lady present, he'd be laughing with him about the lollipop inn. In a conversational tone, Parker comments on James' spectacles. He says they remind him of those worn by the silent comedian Harold Lloyd. He asks James how long he's had them. About a month, James answers. When asked what happened to his previous glasses, he claims that he simply misplaced them somewhere. Parker then requests if he can take a closer look. Without a second thought, James removes the glasses and hands them to the detective. They are identical to the ones that were found lying near the murder scene. Slowly, Parker opens a drawer beside him. He then pulls out the glasses that were found in Bread and Cheese Creek. On seeing them, the color drains from James' face. He looks as though he's seen a ghost. Parker asks him if these were the pair of spectacles he misplaced. Reluctantly, the young man nods. And with that tiny gesture, Frank James has just implicated himself in the murder of David Paul. Parker allows the gravity of the moment to sink in. Then, he goes in for the kill. Detective Parker tells James that they've also arrested Ray Shuck in relation to Paul's murder. He'll be interviewed directly after this session is concluded. He's bluffing, of course. They haven't brought Shuck in yet. Parker just wants to amp up the pressure. So, without skipping a beat, he suggests that the courts will look more leniently on whoever confessed first. By now, Frank James has dropped his cool demeanor. With desperate eyes, he looks toward Anna for the first time, as if expecting her to help. The secretary stops taking notes and in a sympathetic tone, speaks almost in a whisper. Confession is good for the soul. The following day, November 5th, Raymond Shuck is formally arrested for the murder of David Paul based on his mistress's testimony. 
both he and Frank James are rigorously interrogated by Parker about their involvement in the murder for three days. At first, both men try to act innocent and admit to nothing. But Parker persists in wearing them down, poking holes in their alibis and breadcrumbing evidence that proves their guilt. He tells James that the tire tracks from his own car match those that were found at Bread and Cheese Creek exactly. He asks Shuck where he got the roll of 20s from that he showed Mary on the day after Paul's disappearance. And where is that money now? Finally, on November 8th, both scared that the other man will implicate them first, Frank James and Raymond Shuck separately confess to their own involvement in the murder and robbery of David Paul. Of the two, Raymond Shuck's confession proves to be the most fruitful. Shuck says that he and James both hatched the plan to steal from David Paul, but it was always just supposed to be a robbery. He tells Parker that on October 5th, they drove a car with curtained windows up to Paul while he was en route to Philadelphia and offered him a lift. They originally planned to just threaten Paul with blackmail. If he didn't willingly hand over the money, they were going to tell his family and employers all about his scandalous second life at the Lollipop Inn. However, things quickly spiraled out of control. Shuck claims that, to his horror, Frank James became wildly violent once the bank messenger got in the car. James seized him by the collar, Shuck tells the detective. He pulled him into the rear and started to pound him on the head with a chunk of automobile spring. Shuck insists that he even tried to prevent the crime, but the damage was done before he could stop the car. David Paul was dead. From that point on, Shuck felt that he had no choice but to help James dispose of the body. After dropping the corpse into the creek, the two men removed the bloodstains from the car, pulling out the floorboards in the back seat and replacing them with new ones. James threatened to kill me if I ever breathed a word of it, Shuck claims. Having gotten a clear picture of the events leading to Paul's murder, Detective Parker now moves onto the matter of the money. Where did Shuck and James hide all that cash? The answer to that question is one of the most startling things Parker has heard since this investigation began. Shuck tells him that the bulk of the stolen cash is in Camden Cemetery. They will find it, the young man says, in the grave of his late mother. In Camden Cemetery, Parker puffs on his pipe as his men dig up the grave of Mrs. Shuck. Despite the wildness of the story, the detective has no doubt that her son was telling him the truth. The shovels finally reach a coffin, and Detective Parker peers down into the grave. Sure enough, 
Lying beside her wooden box is a smaller tin one. The officers open it to discover it is stuffed with the stolen $20 notes. Detective Parker now has all the proof he needs to convict James and Shuck for the murder of David Paul. Tried separately, both Frank James and Raymond Shuck attempt to shift responsibility for the crime onto the other. However, neither are able to avoid a death sentence, and they're both executed by electric chair in New Jersey on August 30th, 1921. Their deaths are widely reported throughout the country, a gruesome ending to an equally gruesome mystery. Once again, Chief Detective Ellis Parker is hailed in the press as America's Sherlock Holmes. In this case, for his remarkable deduction that the corpse had been preserved by the local tanning factories for over a week, as if pickled. Had this not been established, then the false alibis of the convicted killers might never have been revealed as fraudulent, and the case may have gone unsolved. Parker's career as a detective spans over 50 years. He ultimately becomes a controversial figure after breaking laws he'd sworn to uphold in his obsessive pursuit of the Lindbergh baby kidnapper. But his skills for deduction were famously considerable, and nowhere was this more apparent than in one of his most celebrated investigations, popularly known as the case of the pickled corpse. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We travel to the Bahamas in the 1940s. The world is at war, but in this sun-soaked paradise, something else is dominating the news. Murder. When private detective Ray Schindler is hired by heiress Nancy de Medigny to investigate the killing of her billionaire father, he's determined to keep an open mind. The police already have a suspect in custody, you see. Nancy's playboy husband, Freddie. But Nancy swears Freddie is innocent, and she wants Ray to prove it. On the outside, it looks like a classic murder investigation. But as Ray digs deeper, he finds himself smack in the middle of conspiracy, involving Nazis, high-powered tycoons, and, if you can believe it, the former King of England, Edward VIII. It sounds like a story ripped from the pages of a classic whodunit. Only this story is true. <laughs>